In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We'll continue with the hymn of the month. May God bestow on us his grace. May God bestow on us his grace with blessings rich provide us and may the brightness of his face to life eternal guide us that we his saving help may know his gracious will and pleasure and also to the nation show Christ riches without measure and unto God convert them thine over all shall be the praise and Thanks of every nation, and all the world with joy shall raise the voice of exultation. For thou shalt judge the earth, O Lord, nor suffer sin to flourish. Thy people's pasture is thy word, their souls to feed and nourish, in righteous paths to keep them. Oh, let the people praise thy worth in all good works increasing, the land shall plenteous fruit bring forth. Thy word is rich in blessing. May God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit bless us. Let all the world praise Him alone. Let Solomon possess us. Now let our hearts say Amen. We'll continue with the Catechism Bible Memory work, which is uh, together with the Table of Duties here. So to husbands and wives, and then we'll say the Bible Memory work together. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Colossians 3.19 And wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Ephesians 5.22 Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer, I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. Into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, kids can go off to Sunday school. All right, so um, got a lot to uh, cover today, um, so I'm going to be a little bit all over the place. So uh, just try and stay with me, and if you don't, that's all okay. Uh, so for the the hymn, so I like to kind of say something about the hymn of the month each Bible study, just to keep it in front of your mind. Um, I think a love of hymnody in the church really goes a long way. Um, I had a professor in seminary who who said one of the best things about the Lutheran church is that even if the sermon is bad or even if you have years of a of a bad of a pastor, I shouldn't say bad pastor, but a pastor who doesn't do his job, uh, um, maybe I guess we could say a bad pastor. Um, a pastor who doesn't do his job in teaching and preaching correctly God's word and the whole counsel of God, the liturgy saves us as a church um, because our liturgy is so full with God's word. Um, if you look in the bulletin and you're flipping through the bulletin, every everything in the in the liturgy has a Bible reference next to it. Um, it all comes. It's all based in God's word. And uh, the hymnody is the same way. The theology of the, the Lutheran hymns um, and, and hymns that, that we sing, even if they're not you know, directly from the Lutheran church, uh, the theology that's contained in the church's song and worship, uh, it teaches and it uh, preserves the faith. It's a proclamation of God's word. In some ways, I think hymns do preach God's word. Um, I, I, I kind of hesitate to say that, that they are preaching because... I think preaching is a very specific act set forth in the New Testament for pastors to do, but but you get what I'm saying. Um, so anyway, I think always thinking about what these hymns are teaching us is very good. Uh, so last Sunday I talked about stanza one. Stanza two in this hymn, thine overall shall be thy pray, the praise and thanks of every nation, and all the world with joy shall raise the voice of exultation. For thou shalt judge the earth, O Lord, nor suffer sin to flourish. Thy people's pasture is thy word, their souls to feed and nourish, and righteous paths to keep them. So if you think about the Great Commission, the, the Great Commission, and I'm not talking about the church in Center Hill. <laughs> Matthew 28, Jesus charged the disciples to go forth, what does he say? Go forth to who? Teach. So that's what he says to do, teach, baptize, 
uh, teach them all that I've commanded you. Where, to who does he say? All nations. All nations. All nations. And if you think about the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the gospel and the will of God is supposed to be a worldwide and all-encompassing reality for people. And I think that um, while it is true that the Bible clearly teaches that many people, if not most people, will not believe and will not accept uh, the gospel. In in other words, they'll reject it. Um, While it is true that, that many people will reject the gospel, we should think of the gospel, the mission. So remember stanza one. Uh, and also to the nation show Christ's riches without measure and unto God convert them. So this is Luther. Luther wrote this hymn. This is Luther's mission hymn. This is about the mission of the gospel. We should think of the gospel as something that is going to be successful. Right? So we should be optimistic in this sense. Um, recognizing that in a in, in one sense, we're, we're we're not going to be as successful as we would like to be, right? We're going there are going to there are going to be many people who reject the gospel. On the other hand, when there's all these passages in Scripture, like Matthew 28, um, in the Lord's Prayer, that God's will would be done all throughout the whole earth as it is in heaven, and um, you can think about in the prophets how. And in and Revelation, how the nations come streaming to, to Christ to worship him on his throne. Uh, you can uh, think about Ezekiel's um, temple vision at the end of Ezekiel uh, and how there's uh, just the, the new earth is just this beautiful temple filled with, with people um, that – and, oh, and also the, the other ones I was thinking about is like Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 where and, and other Psalms as well where Christ is pictured on his throne reigning as our king and all uh, nations who conspire against him, all evil rulers of the earth are put in their place under his footstool that Christ is the successful king. He is the king who reigns over all of heaven and all of earth. And so this – and if you go – I know I'm kind of jumping all over the place. Go all the way back to Genesis. What is the command that God gives to Adam? Have dominion over the earth. Right? So we should think about the gospel and the and the Christian faith as something that is spread to have dominion over the earth. Right? That that this is a uh, successful and a uh, all-encompassing way of life for for the nations right that the the all nations would become uh would turn their bow their knee to christ and this idea of the gospel being a, a gospel of dominion um that 
and I, that, I think that can rub our modern ears the wrong way. Um, I, I grew up going to public school, and I was constantly told how the Christian Crusades were, you know, some kind of major moral evil in, in the world history. And um, I'm not going to say there wasn't bad things that went on, but there's also history that's not in public history school books, you know, uh, public school history books as well that tells uh, different stories. Um, the Crusades were also not that big for one. Uh, anyway, but, you know, we're told uh, by our world that all war is because of religion, which isn't true. Um, I, I, in a sense, it's not true. Um, if you consider, like, communism a religion, then it's true. But uh, that's, a, that's something, uh, d- a different conversation. But the idea here is that our, you know, our modern world tells us that you shouldn't try and force your beliefs on anyone, right? And you should be, and and there's a sense in which, yeah, we should be gentle, and we should, we're not going to, you know, um, we're not going to say, you know, bow your knee or or face death or something like that. But that the idea that the gospel. And the, and the Christian faith is going to be successful and have dominion over the earth. And that at, at one time, every knee will bow when Jesus comes back again. Um, but anyway, the, to get back to the hymn, if you think about this stanza in light of that kind of gospel uh, of success and gospel of dominion that I'm talking about, thine overall shall be thy praise and thanks of every nation and all the world with joy shall raise the voice of exultation. For thou shalt judge the earth, O Lord, nor suffer sin to flourish. So at, at some point, Christ is going to come back, and every knee will bow before him. And he will be on his throne, and he's not going to put up with sin anymore. right? He's going to destroy all sin, nor suffer sin to flourish. And, and then I love that Luther then, so he gives this image of the successful gospel throughout the world. And then um, brings it back to kind of the Psalm 23 image for the Christian that that's going to be a place of comfort and uh, pleasure and hope. Thy people's pasture is thy word, their souls to feed and nourish and righteous paths to keep them. So um, love that stanza. Probably one of my favorite stanzas of one of my favorite hymns. So um, my favorite stanza of one of my favorite hymns, I should say. So anyway, uh, love, love that. Um, in the catechism. So that's the hymn. Uh, I like to go over a little bit of the catechism memory work as well. So from the table of duties, which gives Bible verses for our different vocations and callings that we have in life. And a couple of the Bible verses that we have in the table of duties for husbands and wives are uh, Ephesians 5.22 and Colossians 3.19. Now, the thing to say about this is that whenever any Christian in the world today brings up Ephesians 5, wives submit to your husbands, Though you know the world freaks out about that, right? Um, what are you saying? You know, aren't we all? Shouldn't we be equal? Um, you know, what what is this about submission? That's so archaic. That's so patriarchal, right? Um, the thing you can come back with that too, or you can at least for your own sake know, is that that submission and that ordering of the Christian marriage is, if you read you know more than one verse in the Bible. Uh, is very clearly not something without parameters and limitations. So just because 
um, wives are called to submit to their husbands in an ordered relationship, and we'd say, yeah, that's absolutely true, doesn't mean that husbands don't also have duties to their wives. And that's even in Ephesians 5, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, sacrificing yourself for her. That, that's already there in Ephesians 5, but Colossians 3.19 is maybe even more direct. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them, right? So um, the, it should go without saying, but obviously Ephesians 5 is not a um, proof text to allow husbands to abuse their wives, right? Um, sometimes people who don't really know the Bible will say, oh, you know, Christians are okay with husbands beating their wives because it's patriarchal or whatever. Like, just, I mean, read more than one verse, please. Um, and and obviously, uh, that's not the image of the ordered relationship of marriage. So, uh, anyway, there's that for you uh, for the table of duties. But um, both, it is an ordered relationship. Both people have their roles, but... They both have duties as well, right? It's not just one, it's not a one-way street. So that doesn't mean absolute egalitarian interchangeable equality either. Uh, that there are different roles and a and a certain order to that marriage, but that that also doesn't mean um, that it's a one-way street. So keeping those things in balance. All right, um, I wanted to briefly tell you. As the faithful people of the church, about my trip to St. Louis, um, before we get back into Hosea and back into our Bible history. So the reason I want to do this is just um, I have these meetings in St. Louis now four times a year, uh, along with some Zoom meetings and business I have to take care of. And I want you to know you know what it's for so that uh no one is questioning how much you know i'm traveling and things like that so the board the the way this the lcms is set up um in its kind of headquarters is that you have so we, we obviously have the lcms at large the senate and then there's all the districts and then there's all the churches right and there are a lot of resources that the Synod puts out uh, for districts and churches to use. And there are divisions of the LCMS uh, as the, the national church body um, in its headquarters in St. Louis that uh, develops these resources and puts them out. And the way that structure is kind of set up is that you have – there's other other divisions as well, but namely you have the Office of National Mission and the Office of International Mission. The Office of National Mission deals with all the districts and parishes in the um, United States, so uh, developing things like life ministry, um, developing thing uh, resources for church planting and, and revitalization. And all sorts of other things. I mean, a whole whole host of different resources that are are put out there. All the disaster response um, teams and all of that all comes from the Office of National Mission. Then Office of International Mission is obviously dealing with foreign missionaries. Well, both of those offices have uh, policy-based governing boards 
which this sounds very, you know, Robert's Rules boring nonsense, which it is. Um, but I was elected to the board of national mission, which means I'm on the governing board, kind of like a board of regents, if you will, for a university or something like that, of the office of national mission. So basically we write policies for the national mission, office of national mission to follow and then uh, monitor those policies and, and make sure that they're being followed. Um, and the board is made up of various pastors throughout the Senate and various lay people throughout the Senate uh, who are nominated and elected. So um, anyway, I just wanted to, to let you know what I'm doing there. So that's basically what I'm doing. I sit in meetings for all day on Thursday and then um, from like 8 to noon on Friday. So uh, that was, you know, tremendous fun listening to reports, writing policies. Uh, but but I did want to let you know that that's why I'm doing it and that there are good things going on. Um, there's a lot of resources being developed that are, I think, very valuable. There's um, We have a, a huge church planting and revitalization grant um, that over the next three years uh, will be around $30 million for the Senate at large to use to train church planters and revitalizers, which is huge. Uh, so there's a lot of good things going on in, in the LCMS. Uh, so I wanted to share that with you and that um, you can be at hope and rest assured that uh, the LCMS is, is doing good things So um, and, and moving in good directions. So anyway, I just wanted to share that with you so you know what I'm, what I'm doing. Uh, when it comes to the Board of National Mission. Whenever I say, oh, I got to travel to the Board of National Mission this week, that's what's, that's what's going on. All right. Uh, let's jump in then back to Hosea. So Hosea is the last prophet that we're covering on the prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel. In the period of the divided kingdom. So we have uh, the divided kingdom. We have the northern kingdom, Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah. After we get done with Hosea, we're going to jump down. We're going to travel south into the southern kingdom of Judah um, after making doing some connection work between the two um, and talking a little bit about the Assyrian captivity. But uh, we're finishing up Hosea here. And just as a review... Uh, the book of Hosea, uh, between, if you're trying to find it in your Bibles, it's between Daniel and Joel. So Daniel's the last major prophet, um, and, and Joel's the second minor prophet in the order of the Bible. Um, but Hosea is this prophet to the northern kingdom Israel, and he's kind of uh, the flip side of the coin to Amos. So we talked about Amos. <coughs> Excuse me. Amos was the prophet of doom and gloom for Israel, for the northern kingdom. Uh, Amos basically spent most of his book, if you remember, listing out all of Israel's sins and saying that, yeah, you're not going to get out of this. God is going to punish you. And the little bit of hope that he had in his prophecy was that there would be a faithful remnant who would survive. 
um, and who would then eventually uh, be able to return to the temple in Jerusalem with Judah after the captivity. Uh, and that the verse in Amos, seek God and live, right? Hosea is the flip side of the coin in that he also prophesies against Israel. Uh, basically, chapters 4 through 10, he gives prophecies against Israel. But the overarching theme of the book is one of redemption. That despite Israel's unfaithfulness, God is still going to redeem his people. And he still loves them. Okay, And so we get this main theme of idolatry equals adultery. That Israel's idolatry, if you think about Ephesians 5, which we just talked about, marriage is a reflection of Christ and his church and vice versa. So Christ and his church is a reflection of marriage, then whenever we as the church uh, go towards idols and leave the Lord our God, that is the same thing as a bride leaving her husband and committing adultery. And God commands Hosea as the prophet to live this out in his own life so that Israel can see it. So he says in chapter 1, go find yourself a wife of harlotry or whoredom, depending on your translation. Um, I left all my uh, my favorite Bibles at home when I was traveling. So I got my uh, KJV here today. What does that say? Whoredom. Um, that's probably politically incorrect now. Anyway... Uh, he commands Hosea, go find yourself a wife of whoredom. And so he he marries this wife who's known for her harlotry, Gomer. And, of course, uh, she ends up cheating on him. And this all happens in chapters 1 through 3. And then the Lord says, yeah, now go and take her back. Go and redeem her because you love her and because uh, redemption is possible. Right. So and and this is all interspersed then with this contrast or comparison rather to God and Israel, that despite the unfaithfulness of Gomer, despite the unfaithfulness of Israel and what did Israel, what, what has Israel been doing? Uh, they've been serving mammon, the accumulation of wealth. Uh, they've been. Yeah, they've been worshiping Baal. And uh, they've also been worshiping, yeah, here, here we go. So that under Jeroboam II's reign, uh, which is when Hosea prophesies, they've, they've been worshiping the you know, mammon, which is the success of military and, and wealth, and, and worshiping Baal. And then they've also been worshiping um, idolatry in, the, in this way that they've been looking for help, not from God, but every time they need help, they look to foreign nations, and one of the main foreign nations they look to is Assyria, which is a growing empire, which we're going to talk about. Um, we're going to kind of try and connect some things in Bible history after we get done with Hosea. So uh, they've been looking to foreign nations for help, especially Assyria, who is eventually going to turn their back on Israel and 
uh, take them into captivity and besiege them, which is the end of the northern kingdom in history. So they've been looking to help the foreign nations instead of looking to God. Because what is what are they supposed to do whenever they say they go to war, uh, or whenever they have some kind of conflict? They are called to uh, call on God, right? If you think about like back in the United Kingdom, um, whenever how was David so successful, or how was Joshua so successful for that matter? He prayed, right? And God gave them into. God gave the enemies of Israel into their hands. All right, so but they they're looking for help from foreign nations. They're paying tribute money and, and all sorts of stuff. And that's actually going to be the downfall. Um, the way that uh, is it? Who's the last king of Israel? Is that um, Hosea? Uh, so if one one thing, uh, these Bible reference material packets are are helpful. Yeah, Hosea. Is the last king. What Hosea ends up doing is um, decides to stop paying money to the Assyrians and start paying money to the Egyptians, and the Assyrians don't like that. So that's how that's how uh, Assyrian captivity happens. So um, yeah, it's it, it's fun stuff. Any anyhow, um, yeah, the, these Bible history reference packets are helpful. Um, I put these together. They got maps and names and dates and all sorts of stuff. Um, I need to up. There's some things I want to update about it as well. So, um, okay. So that's kind of our review. That's where we are. Um, the outline of the book, uh, yeah, Hosea and Gomer in chapters one through three, prophecies against Israel. Uh, you get a history lesson in chapters eleven through thirteen, where there's this kind of poetic prophecy of Hosea, where he recalls all these things that have happened in Israel's history. Um, and basically showing that there's nothing new under the sun in their unfaithfulness, but also in God's ability to save them. So, for instance, in their wilderness wanderings, when they constantly complain against the Lord, and then the Lord still uh, forgives them and redeems them on account of their repentance. And then in verse four, in chapter 14, we get this amazing future hope uh, of, of the redemption and the return from exile. All right, so we already looked at a couple key passages, uh, 1, through, 1, 4 through 9, and uh, 2, 19 through 20, and 4, 1. Um, so those, the, the 1, 4 through 9 was about the names of Hosea and Gomer's children, which are the, prop, the main prophecies against Israel, that they're called, um, Jezreel means that a great massacre is going to occur uh, in the valley, Lo-Ami means not my people, and... Ruhamaah means uh, no, no mercy. And then these are all the things that God is going to turn around. He's going he's gonna to return them from the massacre of Jezreel. He's going to call them his people again after them not being his people. He's going to have mercy on them again, even though he shouldn't have mercy. Um, and then 2.19 through 20 and 4.1, uh, this is about... Uh, so 2, 19 through 20 uh, is the one of the prophecies that the Lord gives to Hosea to speak about how he is going to remarry or, or keep Israel as his bride. Um, I will betroth thee unto me forever, yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness 
and in judgment and loving kindness and mercies. I will betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt, and then this is the key word, thou shalt know the Lord. So the word know in Hebrew, yada, is this intimate knowledge. It's not just kind of knowing about something like, I know about starters on 92 F-150s because I've had to replace one before. It's knowing someone intimately, right? Um, And you can think about, so uh, when Adam, whenever Adam and Eve have Cain, their first son, uh, Adam knew Eve and she bore Cain. So it's literally about the marriage bed in that case. Um, But it's often applied to God and his people because idolatry equals adultery and marriage is the same as Christ and his church. So uh, for God to know his people and his people to know him means that they are in covenant faithfulness with one another. And so then in chapter 4, verse 1, this is the main problem in Israel is that uh, there is no knowledge of God in the land. No one yada's God anymore. No one knows who he is. Um, in the same way that you could say that a wife who uh, leaves her husband and cheats on him does not know him anymore. Right? They are not they, – they, they have – that connection has been severed. And um, so, so the, the husband has to go and get her back. God has to come and redeem his people. Okay. So next, uh, there are two more key passages I just want to look at to finish up Hosea. First one is uh, 11, 8 through 9. So look at that, 11, 8 through 9. So this is in the uh, kind of history lesson section. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? So first of all, Ephraim... Um, Remember the 12 tribes of Israel in the divided kingdom. The 12 tribes are split up, and it's not an even split. Ten of the tribes uh, go to Israel, the northern kingdom, and two, only two of the tribes go to the southern kingdom, Judah. And obviously Judah is one of them, and then Benjamin's the other, uh, which does have a lot of significance. We'll talk about that later. But Ephraim is represented – Ephraim was one of the bigger tribes – um, they're kind of representative of all of the northern kingdom Israel. So sometimes instead of – oftentimes instead of just Israel, uh, you'll get – you'll just get Ephraim as the name for the northern kingdom. So like Ephraim versus Judah instead of Israel and Judah. So all right. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee – what's your translation say here? Adma. How can I treat you like Adma? Adma, how shall I meet thee, Zeboim? Mine heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee, and I will not enter the city. So the thing I wanted to bring out here. As he's reflect, as Hosea through the prophet prophecy that he's been given by God is reflecting through the history of Israel, is that this is very similar to uh, the the story if you think about it of the prodigal son, right? This is the nature of God's mercy that 
we have the image of marriage, which is the main image here. But we also have this image of uh, the, the children of God uh, going astray. And throughout all this time, they've wandered into this foreign land, um, and they didn't take it over like they were supposed to. And they've fallen into all these traps of this foreign land, and, and all the, the trappings and all the um, temptations. And yet the father says, how can I forsake thee? How can I not go after thee? How can I not wait for thee? Um, I am – and I think this phrase, I am God and not man – um, in the same way, you could say, uh, I am the father. I'm not just some guy, right? That's kind of what he's saying, right? So in the prodigal son, if, you know, like someone's business partner treated them the way that the son treated the father in that story, they'd just be like, well, yeah, screw you. I mean, it doesn't, you know, go, go home. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. Um, I'm not going to wait around for you. You're just a guy. You're just, you're just a business partner. But the father can't do that because he's the father, right? I am, I, I, how can I forsake thee? I am, these, I am the God of this people. Um, and that's how God feels about us, right? So um, this is a, that's an important passage. And then uh, finally, uh, verse 14, just to get – try, I tried to kind of get passages from all four sections. That way you could uh, get a feel for the book. Uh, verse or chapter 14 verse which one did I say verse 9 oh this is the last uh, so chapter 14 it's very short but it's very powerful so um, it's again all about the future hope that they have and I wanted to do verse 9 because so you can read the rest of 14 but verse 9 it, it almost steps out of that it's the very last verse of the book and um, it's the conclusion verse, and it, this is what it says. Who is wise, and he shall understand these things. Prudent, and he shall know them, for the ways of the Lord are right. And the just shall walk in them, but transgressors shall fall therein. In other words, the things that have been spoken in this book, this message of idolatry equals adultery, and God's... This is, I mean, really the main thing. God's extraordinary grace and mercy, extraordinary, right? Because what would an ordinary person do? And I would, I would venture to guess. I mean, I don't. I said, I think I said this last week. I don't know what the percentages of um, adulterous marriages that end in divorce. I would guess it's rather high that most people don't reconcile after adultery in a marriage. I mean, I don't know. I do know. Of one couple that reconcile after adultery. I don't. I don't. But I don't know what the percentage is. Right. That. Well. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Uh, it doesn't have to. And um, I know. I only know of one couple where it hasn't ended in divorce. Um, of all the people I know that have suffered through adulterous marriages. Um, reconciliation is possible for Christians, especially, I think. Um, but it's hard, right? When that trust is broken, it's very hard. And it's not ordinary, right? Ordinarily, if someone breaks the, the bond of a marriage in that way, ordinarily, 
there's going to be a lot of strife and probably divorce, I would guess. But God's grace and mercy is extraordinary, right? It's outside of the ordinary. It's not normal grace and mercy. Um, it's after an entire history of unfaithfulness and after all that they've done, right? They've, they've worshipped Baal. They've sacrificed their children on the altars of Baal at the temple, right? He goes and redeems them. He goes and he loves them. He goes and he says, I'm going to make a place for you. I'm going to bring you back to, my, to me. That's how God's grace and mercy is for us. Uh, so it's a really extraordinary. And then even if you think about the, the, the prophet himself, Hosea, and what he has to suffer for the sake of giving this prophecy, that he himself has to deal with this in the, with Gomer, right? Um, so how would you like to sign up for that prophecy job? <laughs> um, but didn't, didn't, no, that's what he was getting into when he went to seminary. Uh, So yeah, that's uh, that's Hosea. Any questions on Hosea? We could obviously, I mean, it's 14 chapters. We could spend a lot more time in the book, but we're doing Bible history, so we got to. I was just looking at that word. There doesn't really seem to be an actual definition of yada. Uh, of uh, Adma or Zavoin. Yeah, I. Uh, I forgot to look those up, to be honest, um, with you. So I've, I've had my uh, uh, logos up, and uh, all it says for definition of Adma is yeah, the word itself. So. My reference notes here say uh, Genesis fourteen eight nineteen twenty four and twenty five. So I don't I don't know what uh, is referenced there, but I have to look. What did I say? It, it could just be the names of uh, people uh, that are known in that land. It could be uh, little towns that we don't know about. Yeah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim. So this is in Genesis 14.8. And there went out the king of Sodom. And remember, this is a history lesson in chapter 11, so he could be referencing this actually exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, and there went out to the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim. So these must be places. Um, let's see. This is Abram. Uh this is after the dis okay. 
Yeah, so uh, this is when Abram and Lot are being separated, and Lot goes to live in Sodom and Gomorrah. And um, so these are ancient cities. These are just ancient cities. And um, these are obviously destroyed, uh, I think, by the early Abrahamites. And um, this is kind of like when the prophets bring up Sodom and Gomorrah. So God here is saying um, that how can I give thee up, Ephraim? How can I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Eboim? He's saying, how can I let thee be destroyed? I think that's what's going on. Um, that's off the top of my head on a reference note, but I think that's what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I just, what I did was I looked it up in logos and it just the definition of the word is the word. Yeah, that and that just means it's a person or location, so... Uh, because it's a proper noun. Any any other questions or thoughts? Yeah, Steve. Well, you know, we write down extraordinary grace, but in God's mind, that's probably just what it does. Yeah, it, it is in his it is in his character, right? It's extra yeah. it's extraordinary uh, that he's not like sinful man, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. No, that's totally good. That's good. All right. Any other thoughts, questions? All right, um, we got five minutes, which is you know not really time to do much. But um, what I want to do next, just to kind of give you a preview, is look at. I want to kind of connect what where we've been through Bible history. So we started obviously with uh, creation, the primeval period, uh, Abraham. And the patriarchs and Moses and the Exodus and Joshua, then the judges, then the United Kingdom, and then the divided kingdom. And in the divided kingdom, we've studied extensively now with an overview of the kings and an overview of the prophets, uh, the northern kingdom Israel. So like I said, we're going to travel south to the southern kingdom. I want to talk a little bit about how we've got there. I want to because I want to I really want to drill the basic outline of the Bible into your heads, because I think that makes it very much more accessible for uh, reading and study and application. So I want to review a little bit of just the, the overarching Bible history. And I want to, um, before we go south, I want to look at the Assyrian captivity, So, uh, which we kind of touched on briefly a while back at the end of the overview of the Kings. But the so the the northern kingdom comes to an end when Assyria takes them captive, which we mentioned with Hosea earlier. I want to look at what that looked like and what the nature of the Assyrian Empire was um, and what the Assyrian Empire kind of looked like at that time. Uh, it's going to be similar to Babylon, and it also helps you think about um, God's providence. It helps you think about uh, world history, really, with the nature of empires and um, how God uses empires and what causes the downfall of empires 
and um, how Christians should kind of think about that, which is important. It connects to what I was talking about in the hymn, that Christians are called to a certain kind of dominion. Um, Man, in his sinful nature, wants that dominion, but not in the way of the gospel. Right? Man wants that dominion uh, by the way of empire expansion. So uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit. And um, then I also want to talk just briefly about the differences that we're going to see between the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. And then we'll jump into Judah's kings and prophets. So we're going in chronological order more or less, um, except for the divided kingdom it's too much to try and do the northern and southern kingdom at the same time. So we're going to have to backtrack in history just a little bit. Um, but that back page of your Bible history reference material uh, is very helpful in keeping track of where we are. Kind of confusing, but very helpful in keeping track of where we are. So we're about to do that bottom red line on the right-hand side of the Israel into the Assyrian captivity. Um and then uh, we're going to jump over to Judah, and we'll do Judah into the Babylonian captivity, and then we'll do post-exilic prophets as well. So there's uh, prophets who prophesy when these places are in exile, and, and we'll do that as well um, in there uh, at that time. I might do, I might do Daniel and, and Nahum and Daniel first before we go to Judah. I'm not sure. Um, because they, they are in Assyria. So, um, and Daniel, Daniel is great. I mean, Daniel, you get, um, you know, under, under King Nebuchadnezzar and all this, you get the, uh, all these stories, the Daniel and the lions, then the three men in the fiery furnace, these, these, some of the best, um, Bible stories. So that's kind of where we're going. Uh, hopefully that makes sense. Uh, in Bible history, we will eventually get to the New Testament, I promise, uh, which also has great Bible history. So, I mean, we've only been doing this for two plus years, um, and we're this far along, so it's good. Any any uh, questions, comments? Thoughts? Yeah, we started Bible history when I got here, <laughs> uh, which is great. I mean, it's fine. We're doing the whole Bible, so. How do you, I mean, how do you study the whole Bible? It's going to take more than one for one one hour, one week uh, at a time. All right, let's uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your boundless mercy to us sinners. We know we have been unfaithful and have gone astray. We thank and praise you that you have sent your Son Jesus Christ to redeem us, to be the bridegroom and to redeem and sacrifice himself for his bride, the church. We pray that you would always keep this reality before our eyes, on our tongues, and in our hearts, that we would not forget nor live contrary to the truth of the gospel. We pray this through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.